All right, I think we'll get started. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Ben Friedman. I'm uh, Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow at Cato in Defense and Homeland Security Studies, and I'll be brief because we have a packed uh, 90 minutes here. Uh, we're here to discuss the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the uh, Iran deal uh, with Ambassador Wendy Sherman, uh, who is the lead US, US negotiator uh, of it. Uh, I want to thank the Plowshares Fund for uh, supporting this event. Uh, we're going to have two segments today. Uh, first, we'll have an interview uh, with Laura Rosen on my left, far left, uh, interviewing Ambassador Sherman. And then we ha we'll have uh, Ariane Tabatabai uh, from Georgetown and Emma Ashford from Cato offering brief uh, remarks, which uh, Ambassador Sherman will then respond to. And then we'll have time uh, for audience Q&A. I think uh, this is a, an unfortunately good time uh, to have this discussion uh, for reasons that have both to do with this Capitol and Iran's, uh, where they have an election on Friday that could uh, possibly elect a relative hardliner that, uh, while officially uh, for, uh, in support of the deal, might uh, oppose it or at least uh, put pressure on it. And of course, here in Washington, we have uh, a review going on. Uh, the Trump administration is reviewing the deal. Uh, of course, President Trump. Uh, said all sorts of harsh things about it as a candidate. And uh, we have a Congress, uh, the majority of which was almost universally opposed to the deals. And yet it remains. Uh, it hasn't been uh, overturned. Uh, so uh, with that, I'll just uh, introduce uh, our speakers. Uh, Laura Rosen's a journalist for El Monitor. Um, she broke uh, the story about the Iran uh, nuclear talks. Uh, she uh, has reported on foreign policy at Politico, foreign policy, Yahoo, and a bunch of other places. Uh, I believe she's the only journalist to have won the uh, Father Robert F. Drennan National Peace and Human Rights Award, which is named for the fine Massachusetts congressman who was my congressman at my birth. Uh, and then we have uh, Ambassador Wendy Sherman, uh, who's senior counselor at the Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, she's a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard. Uh, she was before that, of course, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Uh, and more importantly, for present purposes, that's uh, when she led the talks. Uh, she served in the State Department in various capacities during the Clinton administration uh, and uh, was at one time head of EMILY's List. Uh, and a lot of other things. I'll introduce the uh, other two speakers uh, when they uh, come up here after the interview. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Laura. Thank you so much, Ben and Cato, for hosting this. And Ambassador Sherman, it's a privilege to interview you. Um, I was following you around the world for a few years as you led the negotiations to reach the nuclear deal, which was a long path. And I remember one night in Baghdad, I think in 2012, you might remember the dust storms. Um, and the negotiations were not, were not producing very much progress. And the US was moving to adopt very uh, harsh sanctions on Iran's banking and oil sector. And it was very late at night, and everyone was exhausted after you'd been negotiating all day. And it was about 1 in the morning. And I, I asked you on this trajectory that we're on, uh, what are you going to tell the American people if we end up in a war with Iran? And you pushed back very hard and said you were not cavalier about the stakes of the policy you were pursuing of 
tough pressure and engagement to try to get a deal. And I would not have foreseen at the time, but just over a year later, Hassan Rouhani was elected president in Iran and put a very sophisticated negotiating team in place led by Javad Zarif, and you all made very rapid progress to reach the interim Iran nuclear deal in November 2013. And after hundreds of negotiations, hours of negotiations later and hundreds of espressos, uh, reached the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in 2015. So I look forward to looking back a bit with you and forward uh, to get your thoughts on the topic today of can the Iran nuclear deal uh, survive Trump? So four months in, just based on what the Trump administration is saying about the deal and what they've been doing as well, um, what is your sense of what their shape, policy is shaping up to be? Uh, I don't know. Uh, then again, I'm not sure anyone in the administration does. Uh, as uh, Ben said, there is an ongoing review. I also understand as the president comes up to the point uh, just about now, uh, when he has to uh, agree on the waivers again uh, for some of the sanctions that were lifted. Uh, I understand there may be a principles committee about this. Uh, I, I don't know any of these things for a fact uh, because uh, transparent isn't even a useful word uh, when it comes to uh, understanding what's happening in the administration because there are several different voices and as we've seen over the last few days, actually over the last few weeks, uh, members of the administration may say one thing and the president then say something quite different as we've all just experienced in the last 24 hours. So um, my sense, bottom line, however, uh, really goes to the statement that came from Secretary Tillerson uh, certifying that in fact uh, everyone had complied uh, to this date, uh, that there would be a review uh, of the deal uh, but he certified compliance to um, the Congress. And so I hope uh, that indeed the waivers are signed, uh, that this deal continues, uh, and that we uh, let the Iranian election play out as it will um, on Friday and uh, probably know by Sunday who the next president is, uh, which may uh, create very interesting times for all of us. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Rouhani, who's running for re-election, has made some very interesting comments the past few days you've seen, um, suggesting that if he wins a second term, that he would be interested in pursuing uh, getting non-nuclear uh, non sanctions on Iran removed. And he subsequently said that he would uh, put Zarif on it, who was the, your counterpart. Right, Zarif, and the Zarif at a rally. Right, and uh, so that seemed to imply to me that he was talking about opening up negotiations with the United States on non-nuclear issues, which the Supreme Leader had not been uh, interested in before. I'm curious your thoughts on when you see those statements. Well, you know, I think this is all a very complex scenario, and one really has to have 360-degree vision around this. Uh, you have to put this in context not only of the Iranian election, but in context of the president's international trip, was about, which is about to begin. He's going to do the G7 uh, meeting where he will hear a great deal about many things. Uh, he'll hear about Russia. Uh, he'll hear about um, where we are with North Korea. 
He'll hear what uh, people want in terms of the Iran deal. He'll hear about Middle East peace uh, from his uh, colleagues. Um, he'll hear about all of this, uh, about cyber attacks. Um, so I think uh, he will go from that, of course, to meetings in Saudi Arabia and meetings in Israel, meetings at the Vatican, uh, where I think all of these issues will be discussed. And you will see in this morning's paper an article about how the uh, Gulf uh, countries who will meet with the president in the GCC in Saudi Arabia may propose uh, that they indeed will open up better relations with Israel uh, if Israel is serious and takes some actions regarding the Palestinian-Israeli uh, peace agreement. Uh, and all of this is in part uh, to create a better partnership uh, between Israel and the Gulf countries to keep Iran from uh, really being dominant in the Middle East. So there is much going on here, and all of these pieces come together, and there is an interplay among them and between them. Uh, so to go back to your original question, Laura, the uh, Rouhani, uh, Zarif, uh, we need to lift sanctions uh, is obviously a statement to the administration, but it's also a statement uh, to the GCC and to Israel and to uh, the Europeans and the world at large. Uh, now, of course, to get any of those sanctions lifted, Iran would have to change from being the world's greatest state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, they are doing terrible, nefarious, malicious things in the Middle East. Uh, they are not good actors uh, in any way. They do threaten Israel's security through their proxies of Hezbollah and Hamas. Uh, they uh, abuse the human rights of their people. Uh, Rouhani, may, we may use the word moderate, but as people have heard me before, I talk about hardliners and hard hardliners. Uh, Rouhani is a conservative cleric. He is not anybody's idea in American terms, in the West terms, of a moderate. He certainly is open to the world, and that is a positive. Uh, and if he wants to change Iranian behavior in a second term, in what they do around the world, that would be welcome, uh, but I'm pretty skeptical. Um, you saw Secretary Tillerson's critique uh, when he certified that Iran was in fact complying with the nuclear deal last month. He followed up uh, speaking to reporters on, on TV afterwards the next day, um, giving a long list of some of the uh, behaviors you're describing of Iran's uh, destabilizing behavior in the region, its support for terrorism, its human rights actions. And he said, you know, the JCPOA did not address any of that. And then someone said, well, should the U.S. pull out of it then? And he said, well, I don't think that would be constructive um, given all of these factors. What do you make of that? Is it, is it on the spectrum of continuity with what you and the Obama administration were, Look, were I saying? Think, I think we see this administration trying to square the circle all the time uh, between what was said during the campaign as well as the different voices that are coming out of the administration or the administration officials versus the president <clears throat> who uh, sends his people out to say one thing and then he really pulls the rug out from under them, quite frankly. It, it must be a very tough job uh, for the national security team uh, at the moment. So I think that uh, the Iran deal uh, was never meant to address all of the problems that we have with Iran. Uh, and that was for several reasons. Uh, first, uh, 
no deal uh, can carry everything uh, in one uh, neat bow. Uh, and to try to do everything in one deal would be to compromise everything in the deal. And that is not good for our national security. Uh, secondly, uh, many of the Gulf states uh, asked us at the beginning of this negotiation, please only discuss nuclear weapons. Do not discuss issues in the region, because we are not in the room. And this is about our security. So you shouldn't discuss our security if we're not in the room. Now, as the deal started to look like it was going to happen, uh, then you began to hear some of those same voices saying, but you didn't solve all the problems that are now facing us in the region, uh, which they had decidedly asked us not to do. And look, I understand the shift. And I understand wanting to keep pressure on Iran. I want to keep pressure on Iran uh, for all of their bad behavior. But I ask people all the time, imagine how much worse things would be if Iran had a nuclear weapon, if they could project power into the region with a nuclear weapon and could deter our and our allies and partners' actions in the region. How much worse would that be? Uh, so uh, I think we did this the right way. Uh, and we now, as President Obama uh, began in his administration, need to continue on a concerted strategy to deal with all the other issues of concern that we have regarding Iran. I mean, do you think that Iran, that even if Rouhani is reelected, that he would have the uh, ability to um, bring along the other forces in Iranian leadership? No. Um, Right. On, regional, on the regional behavior, yeah? No. I mean, you know, the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, is behind Raisi, the uh, opponent, the major opponent to Rouhani. There's now been a candidate on the Rouhani side who's pulled out and a candidate on the Raisi side who's pulled out. Uh, and uh, so we're really going to have a battle uh, between uh, these two uh, polls, su such as polls are, in uh, Iran. Because remember, the slate of candidates running is a slate that has been agreed uh, by the Guardian Council uh, to allow them to run in the first place. So it's a very particular slice of uh, Iranian uh, leadership that's even allowed to run. Um, there's two um, things that the, the Trump administration, I've noticed that they have internalized. And I'm sometimes not sure if, uh, if it's true, but they think it's true. And I was trying to get your reaction um, one, I think I heard the CIA director, Mike Pompeo, say that after the Iran nuclear deal, Iran has been expanding in the region, that all these bad actions we see um, has gotten worse. And so I didn't know if your reaction to that. And secondly, they seem to see um, ISIS um, as an outgrowth of Sunni anxiety about Iranian aggressiveness in the region. And I'm curious your reaction to both of those two views. Interesting, both interesting questions. Um, you know, I think ISIL is an outgrowth uh, to uh, President Assad, uh, who uh, really broke his contract with his own people by using chemical weapons and barrel bombs uh, and not figuring out a way to be inclusive in his government and to end the uh, essential dictatorship of his country and left a vacuum in most, much of his country so that ISIL could have a safe haven. Uh, ISIL was an al-Qaeda, had been driven out to a large extent from Iraq, 
were starting to come back in, but found safe haven in this vacuum that was created uh, by um, Assad. Uh, so no, I do not put that on the head of uh, Sunni leaders. Uh, certainly, Syria has turned into a somewhat of a proxy war uh, by Iran, Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Turks, uh, with everybody having uh, slightly different interests and others, uh, slightly different interests in uh, Syria and financing one or other of opposing forces. I think that'll be unpacked by historians uh, for many years to come. Uh, your what was the first question? Sorry, Laura. I think Pompeo said uh, something Pompeo. about like Iran expanding yeah. its bad so, behavior since the deal. There, there is no question, and we said this at the time, that Iran was going to continue its malicious activity in the region. Uh, they did quite a bit with very little money. Uh, the IRGC basically owned the black market. They didn't want the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action because they lost their black market advantage in terms of earning money. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, we said that we expected that the uh, Supreme Leader, having agreed, more or less, to the JCPOA, would probably do something to bolster the budget of the IRGC, because although Americans tend to think there are no politics in Iran, there are a lot of politics in Iran, uh, and so he's always in this balancing act. Uh, but what I will dispute is when people say Iran's gotten billions of dollars that they've now given to the IRGC. That's not the case. You can do uh, the state sponsorship of terrorism, and you can do the uh, work in Iran through Hezbollah and Hamas and even direct Iranian troops for not a lot of money. Uh, and most of the, the reputed $100 billion dollars uh, that was immediately going to come back to Iran uh, are fr were frozen assets in foreign bank accounts. Of that $100 billion, only about $50 billion was liquid. The rest was in non-performing loans or loans that were outstanding to the Chinese. That $50 billion, a lot of it was likely to be left in foreign bank accounts to be used for commerce and trade. Uh, it is not to say that there wasn't other money that started to come because Iran could get its oil refineries up and going again. Of course, the price of oil was rather low at the beginning of this and still remains uh, beyond uh, below uh, standards. So yes, there was some additional budget to the IRGC, but they were already doing pretty bad things. And the Middle East in general has heated up uh, because of uh, the effort by Saudi Arabia to get rid of the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, and put uh, a government back in place. Uh, so there's a lot that's going on, some of which has to do with Iran and some of which has to do with the heating up in the region uh, that has a million uh, fathers. Um, it's kind of a two sides to one question, which is um, domestic politics, perception of the Iran deal, you know, Trump came in clearly thinking it was a terrible deal and that he could have negotiated a much better one. Um, although I'm not sure he knew the details, but he was convinced that John Kerry, if he'd walked away, would have gotten more concessions. And, um, but yes, you've mentioned... I do remind people, this is not just a deal between the United States and Iran. Right. It's, it's not to say that the U.S. didn't have a heavy hand in this. We did, because if we ever had to go to war, the world would rely on us. 
uh, because some of the most effective sanctions were our secondary economic sanctions. Uh, but this was a deal uh, of the P5 plus one, all the permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany plus the European Union, which at the time was 28 countries. Uh, so, uh, and uh, 15 to nothing vote by the UN Security Council. So just want to remind people, this is, we have a very large position in this deal, no question about that, but it's not just a deal between the US and Iran. So, sorry to interrupt. No, but. no, I mean, that's, it's relevant, but I'm trying to say, why do you think it had to be so polarized and was, is there stuff, is there something the Obama administration could have done differently to get more Republican buy-in? Um, well, I think that when uh, Senator McConnell, McConnell early on said that his number one priority was to make sure that uh, no Democrat followed Barack Obama as president, uh, sort of laid down the gauntlet uh, in terms of uh, we need to do everything we can do to undermine uh, what President Obama has tried to do. And uh, Democrats certainly are part of this polarized uh, politics that we have. Uh, and we do have terribly polarized politics. Uh, you know, we can have a long discussion about how redistricting and gerrymandering created a case where you have extremes who are elected to Congress and therefore have less communication with each other about looking for a bipartisan path forward. Um, we, we can do lots of unpacking of our domestic situation, how we got here, but I think what we saw in the JCPOA, virtually every single Republican said they were against the deal the day the deal was announced and before any of them had read the deal, most of whom I'm sure haven't read the deal to this day. And I noticed, I noticed polling um, recently, maybe three weeks ago, um, that as Trump sticks with it, that Republican support for it is going up. But it, I'm sure it's not based on the facts of the deal changing, right? No, no, it's, it's, it's just that it now there is some acceptance that we are safer because of it, that no one wants to rip up the deal. Uh, and so therefore, okay, let, let's see. Look, you know, when um, we had these negotiations, uh, my counterparts said to me, there was a constant refrain, how, because we were heading towards a presidential election. How do we know that the new president of the United States will stand behind this deal? And I said, how do we know the new president of Iran will stand behind this deal? Deals, whether they are treaties or political agreements, which is what this is, only endure if it remains in the national security interest of the parties involved. Uh, and that's what makes, uh, of course, the deal has to be good and useful and do what it says it's supposed to do. And let's remember, the point of this deal was to make sure all the pathways to fissile material for nuclear weapons was cut off. That's highly enriched uranium, weapons-grade plutonium, and a covert pass. That has all been cut off uh, in a verifiable way with extraordinary monitoring by the IAEA, IAEA, simply extraordinary and intrusive, with provisions that allow the United States to snap back sanctions on our own, cannot be vetoed the way we structure the UN Security Council resolution, should there be one, should there be a dispute. So um, we put in all of the safeguards we thought were absolutely necessary to ensure that the United States was in control of our national security interests. 
And I think the Trump administration has come to understand uh, that uh, it is in our national security interest. You do think so? I do. Uh-huh. I, kind of I don't think there. they love it. Right. Uh, and they think they could have done better. Um, Can I ask, Ben actually asked me to ask, so you, know, you all have acknowledged that it's an imperfect deal, it's a good enough deal, but what are the flaws that you, is there anything that? You know, it's not, it's a... Uh, sunset provision? Well, look, every party in any negotiation wants to get everything they ever wanted and more. That's how you begin a good negotiation. Uh, and uh, of course, people would have liked uh, all of the limitations uh, to go on forever. That wasn't a deal that was available. Uh, nor, quite frankly, can any government commit a future government and a government 30 years from now uh, to doing what the current government is doing. We, we wouldn't do that. So uh, at any rate, anything that had been written in that was forever uh, is uh, one, what one hopes for, but you cannot guarantee. So what we have guaranteed in this deal is really intrusive monitoring, uh, strict limitations on the stockpile and the uh, amounts and types of centrifuges for 15 years, but monitoring and verification of uh, uranium, of centrifuge production for 20 and 25 years, which will make it very hard uh, to break out. Um, and remember, the biggest fail-safe of this deal is to extend what is what we called breakout time, the time it would take Iran to get enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon, to at least a year. And that means that all of our options to reimpose sanctions or to take military action remain in our hands. And we will have enough time to use any of those tools and more if we decide they are trying to break out. And that was the point of the deal. Um, if Secretary Tillerson calls you and says, we want to... Um, we're getting, you know, I'd, be happy, I'd be happy to talk with of them Of course, anytime. of course. But if they decide, I'm given I'm your experience... I'm a patriot for my country, so of course. If they decide they want to um, engage with Iran to um, try to dissuade them from the destabilizing behavior that they're complaining about, and you all complained about as well, um, do you have advice for him? And also, what about, you sometimes hear Secretary Tillerson talk about maybe a follow-on agreement, maybe they'd like to uh, follow on to the JCPOA, since I do think they feel um, they may have to keep it as is. Um, so I would start by saying two very important things. One, get a team. It is simply, in my view, outrageous that there are no assistant secretaries, except for Tom Shannon, no undersecretaries, no ambassadors for the most part, a handful of ambassadors, who have been named, let alone nominated, let alone confirmed. He has said he wants to do a reorganization of the State Department. It will take him to the fall to decide what that is, at which point he will be ready 
to ask the president to name, nominate, and get confirmed people, which means he will not have his senior team for at least 18 months. Because if he doesn't nominate people, if people don't get nominated until the fall, you all know about confirmation processes. It's not till spring or summer or fall before you have all of those people in place. That is not in America's national security interest. He hasn't even named the assistant secretaries for the regional bureaus, who are the real drivers of policy and work and diplomacy and oversight in the US government. He may have different ideas about some of the other bureaus. I might agree or disagree. But even the core assistant secretaries have not been named, let alone an undersecretary for management. If you're going to do reorganization, wouldn't you want to name an undersecretary for management to be part of that process to make sure that it gets done? Secondly, I could go on and on about that, as you can tell. I have some feelings about it. The second thing is, I would not agree to a 31% budget cut. <laughs> uh, the Congress, of course, the administration proposes and the Congress disposes, and I don't believe the Congress will go along with a 31% budget cut. And you might ask, what's that have to do with Iran? It has to do with our relationships with countries all over the world who we will need to mobilize if we want to put pressure on Iran to change their behavior or provide incentives for them to change their behavior. Because they have relations with countries all over the world. The Europeans, who have begun commercial relationships with Iran, will want to make sure that their interests are protected around the world. And the State Department and USAID budget, as you all know by now, is less than 1% of the budget, or about 1%. It's nothing, folks. It's nothing. But it's absolutely critical to our ability to work in the world. And one of the examples that I give is President Trump was very concerned about the Ebola crisis. And uh, he tweeted, as a citizen, we shouldn't let Americans who had Ebola back in this country because then it might infect the rest of the country. He was very, very nervous about the Ebola crisis. Well, in Nigeria, 200 medical trained professionals went to the countries affected in Africa and helped bring that crisis to an end. Those 200 medical professionals exist in large measure because the United States provided health security assistance to Nigeria to help build a health infrastructure. Now, we didn't do it all. Nigeria did it. But we were a very big contributor to that, which allowed them to train medical professionals who then could help stop the Ebola crisis. And I give that because people can get a picture of that. But we do that in 100 ways around the world that come back to our interests. We don't do this just because we're good, altruistic people. I'd be all for doing it because we're good, altruistic people and because it's the moral, Judeo-Christian, Islamic thing to do. But um, it's also in our national security interest to do it. So those, that's where I'd begin with Secretary Tillerson. 
Ben, do I have time to do one more? Yeah. All right, let me do one last one. Um, a, a question from our Iran Talks colleague, Kelsey Davenport from the Arms Control Association, who wanted your opinion on the, um, the Iran sanctions legislation at S-722. Um, she asked, what is your take on the bill in particular um, and the role that Congress can play in supporting the deal in general? So I know that um, the senators, particularly Senator Cardin, worked really hard to try to ensure that this legislation did not uh, create enormous unintended consequences. Nonetheless, I oppose this legislation categorically. And I do so because, one, uh, lawyers disagree about its impact on the JCPOA. Uh, it can be read in a number of different ways, even as it stands, even with some of the care that was put on the bill. Uh, and my question is, why take the risk? Because, quite frankly, the bill doesn't do anything. There's no real consequence to the bill. It's just really a way to say we're tough. Because we can, under our existing laws and executive orders, designate virtually everybody who might be covered in this legislation. So why risk the JCPOA for a bill that does nothing that could arguably undermine the JCPOA? It is just not worth it. So I... Are there other ways that Congress can show they're tough without... uh... They can encourage the administration to use the authorities that exist to designate, as President Trump did early on in counterterror measures, uh, uh, be working now and putting evidentiary packages together for those sanctions, uh, work with countries around the world uh, to interdict shipments of technology where we are concerned, uh, to dry up the financial assets of proxies of Iran who commit acts of terror uh, to share intelligence, though sharing intelligence has now become much harder over the last 48 hours. Um, but yes, there are plenty of things that can be done. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, with that, uh, we'll bring up uh, Emma, Ashford, and Ariane uh, to make remarks. And uh, while they're getting mic'd up, uh, I will uh, introduce them briefly. Uh, Ariane Tabatabai is a, a visiting assistant professor uh, at the uh, Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service uh, at Georgetown. Uh, she was uh, previously at the Kennedy School of Government's uh, uh, Belfer Center there at uh, JFK School. Uh, she was a non-resident uh, associate with the James Martin Center of Nonproliferation Studies. She writes a column uh, for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and she writes frequently on Iranian politics, uh, nuclear weapons, and uh, issues of terrorism. She's a PhD from King's College in the UK. Emma Ashford is a research fellow here at Cato uh, in international, who studies international security and energy politics, uh, in particular focusing on the politics of the Middle East and uh, how being a petrostate uh, affects your politics. Um, uh, Emma holds a PhD from the University of Virginia, and she's been writing uh, recently more on uh, sanctions and uh, when they uh, work or don't. So, uh, Emma, did you want to uh, commence? 
Sure, yeah, thank happy you. to. Um, so thank you, first of all, to Ambassador Sherman for these uh, interesting remarks. Um, and I think, as Ben noted at the start, we're at a really interesting, perhaps not positive point in uh, assessing the legacy of the JCPOA and, and how things will move forward in this new administration. Um, so I'd like to make a few remarks about the broader regional situation, where I think the new administration is is going because I think the technicalities of the JCPOA have been debated to death at this point. Um, and whether the deal survives or not is gonna depend a lot on this broader uh, regional situation and on Iran's activities in the region and our response to them. Um, and I know that President Obama was very clear during the negotiation of the JCPOA that this wasn't about some kind of broader reconciliation with Iran. It was just about the nuclear issue. Um, and I think there are many good reasons for that. There are many obstacles to actually finding some sort of broader reconciliation with Iran, their domestic politics, our domestic politics, um, regional politics. Um, but as a, there was a letter last year uh, issued by a number of senior former officials and policymakers uh, from both parties who noted that the US really does need to improve our overall relationship with Iran, not just on the nuclear issue. Um, and they argued that the US needs more, not less engagement with Iran to do so because it's in our interests and it's in the interests of regional stability. Unfortunately, this doesn't seem to be where the Trump administration is going on this. Um, they have relatively incoherent foreign policy in general, but I would say that Iran is actually one of the few areas where we see, if not perhaps detailed policy thoughts, then we do see a fair amount of coherence in how they approach the issue, going all the way back to candidate Trump's statements about ripping up the JCPOA on his first day in office. Um, and I think we can all be relieved that uh, he seems to have accepted that the deal is, is working to some extent, that it's in our national interests to some extent and is not pursuing that route. Um, but the administration does seem to be determined to push back on Iran more broadly. Um, and I think there's two particular areas where we're seeing this change. Um, the first is on sanctions. Um, and Ambassador Sherman already touched on this, so I won't go into too much depth. Um, but the administration and Congress seem to be fairly determined to make a variety of symbolic gestures with regard to sanctions, like this new, the Corker Menendez bill that's uh, in the House at the moment, that would effectively be a high profile way of uh, reprimanding Iran without actually providing any particularly new authorities for sanctions. Um, and again, this has the potential to undermine the JCPOA. It may not technically violate the letter of the agreement, but just as Iran's ballistic missile testing violates the spirit of the agreement considered more broadly, this kind of new sanctions bill would violate the spirit of the agreement, and that's not a good thing. Uh, to put it bluntly, if the JCPOA is going to collapse, we don't want it to be our fault. We want it to be Iran's fault, because otherwise we will face a lot of pushback from European allies, from other states in the region. The second area that the administration seems to be focusing on um, is some sort of broader regional pushback against Iran. Um, and I think 
Many of us probably remember that extremely strange statement from Michael Flynn back when he was still National Security Advisor that he was putting Iran on notice. Um, and this is part of a pattern of fairly bellicose statements towards Iran that have come out of uh, various officials in the administration. Um, even the more measured members of the administration have said similar things. We've seen, for example, Secretary Mattis on a recent trip to Saudi Arabia noted that uh, Iran is a destabilizing influence in the region. He said there is disorder wherever Iran is, is present and basically promised to help the Gulf states push back on this. Um, there are reports the administration is considering increasing its involvement in the campaign in Yemen. Um, and again, these are fairly symbolic steps. Uh, these would probably worsen the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. They probably wouldn't provide a solution to that conflict. And whatever the connection that the Houthis have with the regime in Tehran, it is not a very uh, in-depth connection. And so pushing back against the Houthis in Iran isn't really, uh, the Houthis in Yemen, I'm sorry, isn't necessarily going to actually hurt Tehran, put pressure on them, or even make them reconsider their actions. Major arms packages to the Gulf states also appears to be a part of this. Um, Obama, under the Obama administration, we saw major arms packages uh, to uh, the Gulf states. The Trump administration appears to have even accelerated this process. All of this turns up the regional temperature in the Gulf, in the Middle East. Um, Supporting an activist foreign policy by the Gulf states will necessarily mean that Iran will respond in kind, and it raises the temperature in the region overall, which, again, as the ambassador already noted, is quite heated already today. Um, so the administration appears to be focusing primarily on these symbolic steps, um, but they don't appear to have any kind of detailed or nuanced uh, plan for how they will follow through on these and actually reap the rewards of any pressure that they place on Iran. And so that, I think, is the bigger problem here. It is not necessarily the survival of the JCPOA. It's whether this administration can capitalize on it to try and improve relations with Iran or whether, more likely, they manage to throw away the small amount of goodwill and political capital that the JCPOA helped to build. Okay, thanks, and Ariana, and then hopefully you can respond. Mm -hmm. Right, well, thank you, Ben, and uh, thank you, Laura, for your excellent questions, and Ambassador, for your insights. Um, I would like to offer a few thoughts, three points, really, on what's going on in Iran. Uh, so zooming in a little bit and seeing what different people are saying about the JCPOA. Uh, ben mentioned that the elections are three, way, three days away, um, and it's been a very heated presidential campaign in Iran. Um, Ambassador Sherman mentioned that we tend to think Iran doesn't have politics, it does have politics, and uh, they can get fairly heated, um, especially in election cycles. Um, this election, of course, has not been an exception. There's been a lot of pushback. There were six candidates. Two of them have dropped out in the past uh, 48 hours. Uh, but roughly speaking, we, have, uh, we had two hardline candidates and uh, two moderates who really took the leads in the three debates that Iran had, um, or hardline candidates and hard hardline candidates, if you want to use uh, Ambassador Sherman's uh, terminology. A lot of the debate, of course, was centered around the JCPOA. There was a lot of pushback from hardliners saying to uh, the Rouhani government, look, you negotiated with the United States. What did we get out of it? Um, really pointing out at the fact that Iran's economy hasn't improved, 
that there's been a lot of, um, there, there's been, there have been mixed messages coming out of Washington uh, the, uh, under the new administration, um, and really saying, you know, the Supreme Leader was right all along, there's no point in negotiating with the United States, it doesn't solve any of our issues, we should really be focusing on ourselves and uh, trying to tackle our domestic, economic, political uh, challenges uh, from within. That said, uh, there's also been an interesting consensus that has formed, uh, which is that the JCPOA is now the law of the land. And this is not the terminology that Rouhani used. This is something that a very hardline candidate, the former mayor of Tehran, sorry, the mayor of Tehran, former presidential candidate, Ghali Baf, um, uh, mentioned um, in one of the debates. So there is a consensus that regardless of how poorly people think of the JCPOA, that the JCPOA is there to stay. Uh, this leads me to my second point, which is that we tend to forget um, that the JCPOA is a multilateral uh, agreement. The ambassador mentioned it. Um, we tend to miss it, especially in the administration's um, rhetoric uh, around the JCPOA. But that's something that is very central to how Iranians think about the, the deal. Um, and part of it is because they believe that the Trump administration's actions and rhetoric are hurting the JCPOA, which in turn makes Iran look good, looks like the responsible party that is abiding by the JCPOA, that is, doing its, its, that is upholding its end of the bargain, while the United States is undermining it in, in different ways. And at the same time, Iran is now building on the JCPOA with the Europeans. They have been negotiating on a number of issues, ranging from human rights to regional security um, issues. And I think that's something that the Europeans actually managed to pick up from, uh, from the United States after the transition um, and said, look, there is opportunity here. We should really be engaging with Iran. And they're doing that very effectively. Um, uh, the high representative of the European Union, uh, Federica Mogherini, is, uh, has a lot of political capital in, in Iran, actually, very interestingly, including among the hardliners. So she's been able to negotiate uh, and talk to uh, her counterparts, not just within the foreign ministry, not just the moderates, but also uh, the broader system, engage the broader, the broader system. So for Iran, there is a lot to gain from the current instability, the current lack of transparency uh, that Ambassador uh, Sherman mentioned. Uh, and, it, and it's really been building up on, um, on the opportunities that have been uh, afforded to it by the JCPOA. Uh, the last thing uh, I want to mention is uh, the view of the broader population of the JCPOA. Um, and the reason why I mention this is that we know where everybody stands on the nuclear talks, stood on the nuclear talks and stands on the nuclear uh, agreement. Uh, Khamenei all along said, you know, I don't trust the United States. I'll give you the green light to, to negotiate, but know this, it's not going to work out or it will work out, but the, the United States won't uphold its end of the bargain. Um, of course, the moderates are really using the JCPOA as their political capital. Rouhani, as Laura mentioned, has been talking about the JCPOA too that would essentially build on what Iran has been doing with the Europeans uh, on the nuclear talks themselves and try to broaden Iran's engagement with the world and lift uh, uh, remaining sanctions. I'm also fairly skeptical of uh, the possibility of this happening successfully in the immediate future anyway. But that's something that he's put on the, on the table um, and has done so despite a lot of um, hardline, uh, hardli hardliner pushback. Uh, but the population, which was very enthusiastic about the deal, uh, you may have seen photos of pe people coming out and celebrating after you, um, uh, you signed the deal in uh, Vienna uh, about two years ago, almost uh, to the day uh, at this point. Uh, but that enthusiasm has been dying out. I would say that the J 
general trend in Iran is a negative one. People are going more and more toward Khamenei's stance on the JCPOA, saying, OK, we negotiated, we got the deal, but what are we getting out of it? Um, so essentially, sanctions are being lifted, but they're not seeing the consequences, the implications, the, the impact on their own lives. And of course, part of that is Iran's own domestic situation. A lot of it is Iran's own domestic situation. Uh, corruption, mismanagement, the IRGC's hands everywhere um, in uh, Iranian political and, uh, and economic life. Uh, and some of it, of course, is due to the lack of transparency uh, that uh, Ambassador Me uh, Sherman mentioned uh, coming from the administration. The fact that many businesses, including in the region, uh, who know Iran well, who have engaged with Iran, don't know where we're going. They don't know if the future of the deal is secure enough. And therefore, what, you know, should they engage? Should they be jumping in this market that seems like a risky one, uh, where uh, they may have to, to you know, pack up and go again uh, in, a, in a few months, depending on where the administration goes? Um, so I'll leave it here. OK. So uh, just a couple of points. First of all, um, I want to give, uh, I want to thank uh, Cato, and I want to give uh, ben credit for sitting among four strong uh, women, uh, a very unusual circumstance uh, in national security, uh, and uh, salute my colleagues for their good comments. It was um, organic, not a plan. Just sometimes it happens that way. You know, some, sometimes it's better to just say nothing. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you learn on the panel like this. Okay. So... Um, one point I, I did not mention, which we, we can't have a conversation about Iran and the United States and not talk about the American citizens who are being held in Iran. And Robert Levinson, uh, who has been gone from this country for so many years, and Iran has not been willing to tell us where he is or help to get him home, give his family any sense of what things are. Um, when I did the Iran negotiations, the only other issue I discussed every single time we had a round was to have a bilateral with the Iranians to talk about the American citizens who were being detained. Um, it is a horrendous experience, as I think I'm sure many of you have heard, either from Jason Rezaian or for, uh, from Hala Esfandieri or others, uh, what it's like to be in heaven prison. Um, and this is an ongoing tactic of the IRGC and the MOIS, the intelligence services. It is terribly concerning. Uh, one of my colleagues at Albright Stonebridge Group, Jim O'Brien, was the president's special envoy to try to continue negotiations to get Americans out all around the world. Uh, Jim obviously is no longer doing that because there's a change of administration and no one has been named to try to do that either. Um, probably the most difficult meetings I had as undersecretary for political affairs uh, because the job is a responsibility for every region in the world and all international organizations was to meet with families of detained Americans around the world. It's truly, truly a horrible, awful meeting, not nearly as awful as the people who are sitting on the couch with you who have to live with this every day because their loved ones are not home and they don't know when they will come home. Um, I mention this not only because it's right and important that we do and we never take our eye off of the importance of that, but because one of the other recommendations I'd give to Secretary Tillerson is to, I know he wants to get rid of special envoys. I'm all for getting rid of most of the special envoys, 
but this is a job that is a necessity for trying to take care of our responsibility as Americans for American citizens around the world. So I would urge him to fill it. Uh, I would also urge him to find an opportunity to establish a relationship with Foreign Minister Zarif. Uh, Secretary Kerry had one, and one American sailors were taken uh, by Tehran. Uh, they got out within 24 hours, which has never happened in the past, because he could pick up the phone and talk to Javad Zarif. Uh, it doesn't, there is no trust between the United States and Iran. Uh, I don't expect there to be any time soon, but that does not mean we shouldn't have a channel of communication because it is in our interest uh, to do so. So I wanted to make sure that we talked about that. And then the last comment I'll make is about um, investment. I said to my Iranian counterparts and to Minister Zarif as well that uh, the JCPOA and the lifting of sanctions would not solve all of Iran's investment problems because working in the private sector, as I did for a decade before I became undersecretary and now back in the private sector, uh, companies make decisions on the basis of risk. And US sanctions on Iran's nuclear uh, ambitions were not the only risk. Uh, there were risks around their state sponsorship of terrorism. There were risks around their human rights abuses. There were risks about Americans being picked up and put in jail. Uh, there were risks uh, because their central banking system isn't what should, it should be. Their money laundering uh, uh, rules and regulations don't live up to standards. Transparency and the ease of doing business do not live up to standards. And so there were many things that companies would look at in terms of making that risk assessment, and this deal alone could not solve all those problems. I'll stop there, and delighted to take questions and thank my colleagues. Sure, well, one quick follow-up uh, for me before we go to audience questions, just uh, on sort of what both Emma and Ariane said. Uh, I understand that this is a, is a non-proliferation agreement, not uh, a general peace deal that's uh, meant to permanently reform uh, relations between the United States and Iran. However, I wonder to what extent, uh, that being said, there was at least a hope uh, among, uh, in, among the Obama administration yourself about what effects, positive effects it might have, particularly on these issues of uh, Iranian politics and the balance of power, if you will, between moderate and uh, more hardline forces. One always has hope uh, that people will see more freedom, really have a democracy, uh, have their human rights, uh, have liberty. Uh, but when we did the JCPOA, the only thing we were certain of is that we were closing down all the pathways to fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Uh, one hopes that as companies and countries engage in relations with Iran, that it opens up windows. I think uh, the majority of the Iran population is under the age of 35, probably under the age of 30. I think one of the reasons the Supreme Leader acquiesced to this deal was really happened in 2009 with the very quick green revolution, which was snuffed out, that without some better economic situation, a real green revolution might happen, and his uh, leadership might be at stake. Um, so one always has hope 
but this deal was not done on expectation that that hope would be realized anytime soon. Okay, uh, with that, we'll turn to questions. Uh, make sure the questions are questions, uh, not <laughs> little speeches, say who you are. Uh, and uh, remember, to, uh, you can ask, everybody can answer. Uh, Ambassador Sherman's the star of the show, <laughs> but uh, the, the responses are open to everyone. We'll go right in front here first, James. I think there's a microphone, Barbara. It's coming. Barbara Slavin. Thank you very much. Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. Um, for Ambassador Sherman, but anybody else can jump in if they want. Uh, in the JCPOA, it specifies that the U.S. nuclear-related sanctions, which have been waived, must be formally lifted, I believe, by 2024. What happens if that doesn't happen? And doesn't, isn't there going to, of necessity, have to be some sort of follow-on negotiation as we get closer to these kinds of deadlines? Thanks. One hopes that by 2024 uh, that Iran will have uh, continued to comply. Otherwise, the deal will not be sustainable. Uh, one hopes that that's sufficient time for the IAEA to reach its broader conclusions, that Iran does not have uh, any um, uh, secret facilities uh, that would... Uh, underline uh, nuclear weapons ambitions. Um, and if they reach the broader conclusions before 2024, that is also a signpost for the uh, ending of sanctions. Uh, at that time, they would formally also join the additional protocol. They have now done everything required of the additional protocol. Um, and that is in perpetuity. Uh, at that point. So um, we will see what people decide about what else, if anything, is necessary. Okay. Uh, maybe right here, uh, John. Yes, can I ask sort of uh, John Miller from Cato and uh, Ohio State? I guess it's sort of a basic question um, about proliferation in general. Uh, no country since World War II that's, to which uh, weapons have proliferated have used them for anything except uh, stoking their national ego and deterring real or imagined threats, including even countries with certifiably crazy people running them like Stalin in 1949 and, uh, and Mao in 1964. Um, the meanwhile, efforts to stop proliferation, such as the war in Iraq, have, have resulted in more deaths than are people killed in, um, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Uh, you mentioned that uh, one of the bad things about Iran, if it had nuclear weapons, would be to keep uh, deter the United States from attacking it, given the United States' abject failure in the Middle East in wars since 19, since 2000. Don't you think that would rather be a good idea for the United States and very much be in its interest? So what's the question? Why, where is, why is proliferation such a hot-button issue such that you want to start wars to stop it? Uh, first of all, just one fact issue, which is that... Um, Iraq didn't have nuclear weapons, as we discovered. Um, it, no, I, no I, under, I understand. It wasn't something I supported at the time, but I, I understand why President Bush made that decision. Um, uh, I'm going to say something briefly and then turn to my colleagues as well who, who look at the Middle East. Uh, Emma might want to start with that uh, more broadly. 
proliferation matters enormously because, quite frankly, uh, just because no one has used their nuclear weapons, and certainly back in the Soviet times we had uh, <coughs> mutual deterrence, um, we don't create a safer world by more people having nuclear weapons. And besides our concern about North Korea having uh, nuclear weapons and maybe soon a delivery mechanism for them, um, one of the reasons we need to stop North Korea is not only because it puts our security quite directly at risk, whether or not he would ever use them, uh, but it also will encourage, without a doubt, other countries in the region, like Korea and Japan, to believe they need nuclear weapons, or uh, we will all be spending lots, 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 lots more money in missile defense systems uh, to protect uh, ourselves and our allies and partners from nuclear weapons. I just don't see anything good about a world with more nuclear weapons. We should be building down, as we had started to do with Russia, not building up. Uh, and I think when you have everybody from Bill Perry to George Shultz uh, who believe with all their hearts that we should get to zero, won't happen in our lifetime. I salute President Obama for his uh, Prague speech, uh, even if he didn't get as far as he would have hoped and, as he said himself, wouldn't get there in his lifetime. It is an ambition, I believe, profoundly we should all have. I don't know if either of you want to add? Just with regard to Iran specifically, there, there are regional concerns, right? If the, the Iranian desire for a nuclear weapon was in part driven by the fact that Israel, though they've never actually declared them, have nuclear weapons, um, if the Iranians succeeded at getting a nuclear weapons, the Saudis would undoubtedly want one, the Emiratis would undoubtedly want one, and it does increase the risks of accidental use the idea that someone crazy could get them and use them. More nuclear weapons in the region, particularly a region as uh, historically unstable as the Middle East, it doesn't seem like a good idea for anyone. Right, let, me, let me just add one thing sort of to the end of Emma's sentence. Uh, back in, I think, 2008, I was part of a Congressional Commission on the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction and the Prevention of Terrorism. Great title. <laughs> uh, and the number one concern we had was radiological material, biological material, or a nuclear weapon in the hands of a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a suicide bomber who doesn't care about their own life, because they believe that the caliphate in the next life is more important than the one in this life, then they might use a nuclear weapon in ways that a state might not. And so in the world in which we are living, where that becomes a greater and greater possibility, we shouldn't have more nuclear weapons. Can I just add one more thing? So there is the, the security concern, right? The, the terrorists getting their hands on nuclear weapons, especially in a region like the Middle East. Um, but you also have the safety concerns, uh, so you could have accidents. There's also the risk of miscalculation, which is something that uh, we are increasingly grappling with today, right? That you could have a situation you know, in a fast-moving environment where one actor, one uh, player would make a decision that could have catastrophic consequences. Right, so it might be a small chance, but it'll be a catastrophic event. We've had near misses, though, a number of times. Okay. Uh, how about this gentleman over here in the third row? Yeah. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much so far. Do you mind introducing uh, yourself? Sorry. 
the, uh, the question I have. Uh, sorry, do you mind introducing yourself? I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Ed Powers, I'm a retired NASA engineer. The, uh, the question or the problems that many of us had was with the treaty was that it opens up further potential arming, advanced armaments to Hamas, Hezbollah especially. I'm not sure whether that has been really substantive at this point. But uh, since, it has, since, since Iran is a, the world's number one terrorist supporter, uh, it's not going to decrease. The concern that we have it being so high up at now, which is why they are so strong, what, how do you feel? What should we be doing in order to curtail that kind of action of, of Iran? What I get out of the discussion so far really is that maybe we shouldn't be offending Iran too much. But it seems to me that uh, something needs to be done in the, the arena of, of curtailing their terrorist activities, especially in that region. Yeah, I, I thought I sort of gave a list of things I thought we should be doing. <clears throat> I think we should be coordinating strategically with the Gulf Coordinating Council, with Israel, uh, with Egypt, with uh, Jordan, others in the region, with uh, the European Union uh, about a strategy to stop their behavior. And that strategy has to include not only defensive weapon systems uh, and uh, missile defense where appropriate, <clears throat> but sharing of intelligence where is appropriate, interdiction of technology around the world, drying up <clears throat> financial assets that are used to finance uh, proxies in the region um, to uh, use the sanctions we have. We have all the authorities we need on human rights, on um, uh, other forms of proliferation, on uh, weapons, uh, and we should use the authorities we have to designate entities and dry up the assets that finance those entities. Uh, we have a lot of tools uh, that we can use. We should always have our military ready uh, and um, uh, ensure that we have a plan uh, should we need to use military action either to keep the Straits of Hormuz open or to destroy facilities in Iran if it ever came to that. So yes, there's lots we can do, but it takes a team of people to do it, and they don't exist. So we don't have the strategy. Uh, I hope that we will see more of that in the president's trip to the region that's upcoming and his discussions with the Europeans. Uh, and then we need the team to execute and implement that strategy. Thank you, OK. Uh, how about in front here? Thank you, Lou Gagliano. Question. Uh, I think the uh, optics of the deal, the original deal, when you give all the funds, even though 50% of it is probably all they could claw back at the point, uh, but assuming that that's the best deal we could get, the, the, the leverage of, um, or the importance of verification you stressed, but uh, we have a long history of knowing Iran doesn't tell the truth, so how do you know how do you really know that you're inspecting all of the places where they could be doing something that we don't want them to do unless you do some kind of diligence up front with boots on the ground to make sure that you know where all this stuff is going on? 
Well, the IAEA is on the ground. Uh, and one of the provisions of the deal is that if they believe or have concerns that there might be a site that was not known, and remember the IAEA gets intelligence from all of its membership, um, that they have a right to see that site, even if it's a military site. Now, under the additional protocol, they could do that in any country, but the way the additional protocol was written, it left open sort of the last mile of that, meaning that if a, a country could say, well, we don't want you to go to that site, but we'll offer this paper. Uh, and Iran could say, no, we want to go to that site. And the country could say, well, no, you can't go to that site, but you can go to that site. And that could go on forever. The way this agreement is written, there is a mechanism to force Iran to allow the IAEA to visit a site of concern. Uh, and time limits uh, for um, that dispute to be ongoing before the IAEA says we must. And we have structured the vote in such a way that uh, if the U.S. believed a site needed to be seen, the site would be seen. Uh, the verification methods are quite considerable. And one of the ones that's very critical is what's called uranium accountancy, which is when uranium comes out of the ground, it is followed every inch along the way, which makes it virtually impossible to set up a covert supply chain. So even if they opened up a facility that's supposed to hold centrifuges, they'd have to have the material and we would know. So there are all kinds of elements. This is why this deal took so long. Um, it's why it's so complex. It's why I'm so grateful to the experts, to Secretary Moniz. Uh, there might have been a core team of 15 people. There might have been the President of the United States, Secretary Kerry, Secretary Moniz, me, and a, a team of 15 who were the core. But literally, there were hundreds of people in our government who worked on this. And our labs, uh, towards the end of the deal, were up 24-7 because of the time change so that they could verify and validate everything that was being done. Uh, it, this was an extraordinary effort. Uh, and nothing is ever perfect in life, uh, but this is pretty damn good. Follow up on that, if you could. I, I know that you've suffered from being falsely accused of being the author of the uh, North Korea deal. Uh, but uh, what did uh, the United States learn uh, from that deal uh, that was applied in this one, either positive or negative? Uh, so to quickly uh, go over what Ben is saying, uh, people always say, you know, the same horrible person who did the Iran deal was the horrible person who did the nuclear deal. Uh, I actually think that Bob Gallucci, Ambassador Gallucci, who negotiated the agreed framework in 1993 and 94, was quite able and quite capable. And that deal for a decade uh, kept uh, North Korea from producing any fissile material. So at the beginning of the Clinton administration, there was enough fissile material in North Korea for one or two nuclear weapons. Uh, and that had been created uh, during Bush 41's administration. And for the entire length of the Clinton administration, no more fissile material was created, let alone a nuclear weapon. And when you have enough fissile material for one or two nuclear weapons, you're less likely to use one because you'll use it up 
or test it because you'll use it up and then you don't have a deterrence anymore. Um, uh, what we were, the Republicans, however, during the entire Clinton administration didn't like that deal. And when the Bush administration came in, they decided it was time to kill that deal. And it was discovered that Iran, that Iran, that North Korea had started a secret enrichment effort, which hadn't been successful, uh, but what was indeed an effort by North Korea to try another path of fissile material. Um, at the end of the Clinton administration, what I did try to negotiate with a superb team was to stop them from testing missiles, which is what we are seeing today. Because if they couldn't test missiles, then they couldn't create a delivery mechanism. So at that time, there were no nuclear weapons. There wasn't the fissile material to create a battery of nuclear weapons let alone weaponize it and attach it to a missile. But if we could stop their testing, we would have shut down the other element that's necessary to create a deliverable nuclear weapon. Um, so that's what Ben was referring to quickly. What we learned, however, uh, was that you have to have a very comprehensive effort. You have to make sure that people understand what the deal is about. The North Koreans believed that the agreed framework was an effort to normalize their relationship with the United States. That never happened. The US believed it was to stop their nuclear program. For 10 years, that did happen. Uh, it turned out to be a very hard deal to execute, to create a, uh, moderate, a moderated nuclear reactor, with a light water moderated nuclear reactor, which would be proliferation uh, pretty much safe, um, that was done by a consortium of countries, very complicated thing to do. Um, we had made progress, but not without some obstacles. Uh, so uh, it got to a point where it was not in countries' national security interest to maintain it. So when we did the Iran deal, we tried to anticipate how to ensure that this was more durable for a longer period of time. The uh, agreed framework was four pages long, so it did not have considerable detail that was necessary. Depending on how you array our deal, it's over 100 pages long. It is staggeringly detailed. Uh, and um, it has eyes on by the entire world, uh, not just the United States, although the United States consulted heavily with uh, South Korea and Japan. It was a bilateral agreement. Uh, and this one is decidedly not. OK. Uh, what about Eric Gomez? who works at Cato, I'll introduce him. He does Asia policy. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so for the Iran deal, I, I think the technical complexity of it was a great feature of it in terms of. Can you hold the mic closer? Yes, Thanks. Uh, sorry. Uh, the technical complexity of the Iran deal really stood out in terms of proliferation or non-proliferation agreements. Is there any chance that such a technical uh, agreement could be applied to Iran's missile program, because that seems to be a major sticking point so far in the Trump administration in terms of, oh, well, okay, yeah, Iran might have agreed to the JCPOA, but if they continue to test ballistic missiles, then that is a threat that 
you know, we can write laws that countervene the spirit of the JCPOA. Um, is there any sort of more technical path that we could place some limits on Iran's range of missile program, or we could place limits on the range of future missiles um, in order to have, like, set in the range but have them get more accurate at shorter ranges? Um, is that, like, a acceptable sort of compromise that exists in terms of controlling or placing some controls on the missile program without trying to completely stop it, um, which would be not in the spirit of the JCPOA? Well, I think, you know, this goes back to Laura's point about um, uh, Rouhani and Zarif basically uh, putting forward the idea of removing other sanctions that are on Iran. Uh, and we'll see whether, if Rouhani is elected president, that means that they're willing to have discussions about their missile technology. I would be very surprised if they do. Um, you know, we'll see what Ariane uh, thinks of that uh, possibility since she knows Iran so well. Uh, but uh, I think it's not likely. Uh, but certainly, if they were open to those discussions, it would be a worthwhile discussion to have. We do have both executive orders and law uh, to sanction Iran for their missile uh, technology and technology transfer. We do a lot of interdictions. The UN Security Council resolution, uh, which still has um, a ban for a period of years on their missile technology, which they violated with impunity uh, in the past and will continue to violate. But what's important about it, besides pushing back with sanctions, is that it creates an international imprimatur so that if we go to country X and we say, there's a shipment of technology coming your way, we're very concerned about it, we think it will advance their program, make the world less secure, we want you to inspect that ship, they feel they have license to do that. Uh, because we have very tough uh, laws in terms of interdiction and scope to do so, not every country does. Uh, but um, uh, this gives them an imprimatur that allows them to do that. And can Ariane Laura may have Well, I have a question. Um, um, so the ballistic missiles were not covered by the JCPOA, but my understanding is uh, Iran voluntarily uh, in the discussions uh, said they would, gave you all some understanding or whatever. Can, can you explain what that was? And maybe it was they could test a certain range, but they could, wouldn't go, no? No. No, I mean, the, the, one of the biggest debates at the end was the UN security resolution and the limitations on arms transfers and missiles uh, in the uh, final UN Security Council resolution. And uh, it was a negotiation that was basically done by us uh, because the US holds the pen on Iran resolutions at the UN. Uh, and uh, it was a very, uh, tough and one of the last issues. And one of the reasons it was tough was that Russia and China wanted zero limitations, uh, and we wanted many. Uh, and uh, so we ended up with a compromise, and we had all quite consciously left it to the end when everybody was invest more invested in the deal uh, so that Russia would have and China would have to accept there were going to be limitations. Can I add two points? Um, so I absolutely agree with what you said. I don't think it's very likely. Um, there are two key challenges. The first one 
uh, is that the IRGC is actually the custodian of Iran's missile program. Uh, so the IRGC has had hands in Iran's nuclear program, as it has in, in other areas as well. But it's not the, the nuclear program is not a consolidated IRGC effort. Uh, meaning that there is oversight from other branches of government, from other parts of uh, the system. The missile program is essentially exclusively uh, a product, uh, is within the, the RGC's purview, which makes it incredibly difficult uh, for the United States to negotiate on. And the second thing uh, is that Iran, uh, at the time when it came back to the table in 2012, uh, was no longer seeing a nuclear weapon um, well, it had stopped its uh, consolidated nuclear weapon-related activities, research and, and development, in 2009, uh, 2003 and 2009, according to the IAEA. So at that point, it had made a decision uh, that that was not going to be a deterrent for it. It was, at least in the foreseeable future, it wasn't going to be relying on uh, a nuclear deterrent. The missile program is viewed by Iranians, and I would say that's the case within the establishment, but also the broader population, as a deterrent. And given the regional environment that Emma described, um, it's very difficult for, uh, for the Rouhani government to be able to sell this to the public, to sell it to the rest of the establishment and say, let's go and negotiate about the missiles. I would see um, uh, negotiations on other aspects of Iran's activities before uh, the missile program. But um, you should never predict what Iran is, uh, is likely to do, so. <laughs> OK, who's next? Uh, how about in the back? And we'll come to you. And we have ten. Yeah, five minutes. Thank you, um, Melissa Apter, with the expert practitioner, Ambassador Sherman. You had spoken earlier. Yeah, I'm sorry, dear. You have to speak. Put the microphone close. That's better. better. Yep. Thank you. Uh, Melissa Apter, I'm with the export practitioner. You had spoken earlier about vacancies and reorganization at state. Um, I want to speak a little bit to what's happening at Treasury. There has been a nominee for the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, which was previously held, I guess, unconfirmed by Adam Zubin. Uh, I was hoping you could comment a little bit about the importance of that position in relation to the JCPOA. And also, if you can comment on, last I checked, the Democrats had put a hold on the current nominee for that position. How wise is that, uh, given the importance of the Iran nuclear deal? I think it's a very important position. Adam was critical, uh, first David Cohen, and then Adam Zubin. Uh, uh, and Felicia Swindell to uh, the work of, and Treasury lawyers, we had lots of lawyers, uh, Treasury lawyers uh, to the JCPOA. And I would note that Adam opposes uh, the uh, Corker-Menendez legislation um, as well and has publicly said so, sent a letter to uh, both uh, Senator Corker and Senator Cardin in that regard. Um, so I think it's very important. Uh, you know, holds are the politics of the Senate. Uh, and um, uh, having lived through many of them over the years in dealing with the Senate, uh, it is a prerogative they hold dear. OK. Uh, right down here. This side is quiet, so <laughs> keep going over here. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Kutzig, retired from Department of Agriculture, who worked on the Iran desk for many years. A little history. Ambassador, could you enlighten us as to why uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu needed to come to Washington to lecture us on how bad this deal is? And 
whether he wanted the deal stopped completely, and whether we kept the Israelis informed throughout the whole negotiations of what was in that, in, in that deal. Thank you. Sure. Yes, we did keep the Israelis incredibly knowledgeable about this deal. Uh, we had constant consultations with them, uh, not only because they are uh, a true partner with us and uh, a country, the, the only democracy in the Middle East, uh, and care deeply about Israel's security, uh, but um, because they have technical expertise that's quite good in this field. Uh, and so um, we had many conversations. Our experts had many meetings. Um, I had constant conversation. Uh, so they were quite well aware of everything that was going on. And I think you've heard from the military professionals and the technical professionals that they think this deal has improved Israel's security, at least in their words, for the at least for the next decade. I uh, believe that every president, every prime minister uh, gets to, with the consultation with its citizens and its government to decide what's best for the national security of their country. And I have never questioned the prime minister's right to make that decision for his country. I wish he had not opposed the deal. I wish he had not worked so hard to oppose the deal. Um, but that is his right uh, to make that decision. And there was support by the citizens of Israel from, for that political position regardless of what the professionals said about the usefulness of the deal. Uh, I would note that I don't think the prime minister has urged President Trump to rip up the deal. Uh, and uh, I hope that, I, although I expect to hear a lot of tough rhetoric uh, on this upcoming trip, uh, we'll see what actions follow. I don't know whether others here have anything they want to add to that. Okay, one more question. It's John, uh, John Alligator. John Alligator. Okay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, and that'll be all. Make sure, it a good one. Good. John Allen Gage on Quincy Adams Society. So, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, just in Washington in general about Iran's proxies, destabilizing behavior. And that's certainly, it's certainly true that they are taking destabilizing actions around the region. But how much of this is a, uh, a kind of standard uh, competition between different centers of power in the Middle East, uh, such as Saudi Arabia? And, you know, if, if that's the case, uh, couldn't we allow the mutual fear of states in the region of, uh, of Iran to uh, encourage them to form a coalition uh, against Iran where they would have a stronger interest in uh, deterring those advances than we would since Iran's advances impact them more directly. In other words, why should we be uh, taking a dog in this fight when local actors may have stronger incentives? Emma, do you want to start? 
Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I would like to echo Ariane's comment from before, that, that the regional security environment really matters, and that for Iranians domestically, some of these programs that we view as destabilizing may be viewed by them as a deterrent or a defense. And, and this is the case with, with a lot of states that we view as, as bad actors. Um, I, I do like to view the Iranian problem in the context of the broader regional situation. If we talk about missiles, there's the fact that Saudi Arabia, um, to some extent the United Arab Emirates, are starting to invest in missile technologies themselves, working with China and other countries. Um, if we talk about proxies in other states, Iran has been doing this a lot longer. Hamas and Hezbollah are probably far more deadly than a lot of other states. But again, Saudi Arabia has been heavily involved in the conflict in Syria. So has Qatar. The Emiratis were heavily involved in Libya. And so I, I think if we're going to talk about these problems and talk about Iran's destabilizing behavior, we can't do it by simply backing one side, saying we will back the Gulf states to the hilt because they are the good actors and Iran is the bad actor. The fact is that all sides in the conflict do have some responsibility for what's going on. I'll add a couple of points. Uh, the first one, John, as you know, is that, yes, it's part of the competition is part of the picture, but another part of the picture is the deterrent factor, right? Iran doesn't have traditional alliances with countries. It hasn't had those since 1979. So it sees some of these relationships, particularly with Hezbollah, as a way to deter other countries, as, uh, as something that strengthens its national security. We may disagree with it, but that's their perception, and they're going to continue to hold on to that, to that thought. Um, I would add that, all the, not all proxies are created equal, right? That uh, Emma mentioned the Houthis. The Houthis are not Hezbollah for Iran. There are, and if you look at all of the other relationships that Iran has with non-state actors, with terrorist groups, they're all very different. And it uses the different, leverages these different relationships for different purposes. But um, to add one more recommendation, I guess, for the State Department, um, I would say the major thing that we can do is to try to, uh, to get the, the GCC to um, sit across the table from, from Iran. Uh, the Rouhani government, since, uh, to its credit, um, since it came to office, since 2013, has been stressing the idea of dialogue uh, with regional partners, uh, sorry, regional adversaries, uh, I guess is a, is a better term. Um, Various GCC members have been very open to it. Of course, there's the, the Omanis who are um, perpetually uh, pro, um, pro uh, talks and engagement. Uh, the Saudis, the Qataris, the, the Emiratis have been going back and forth on it. And I think that a little uh, boost from the US uh, to say, look, you need to really try to own uh, regional security uh, issues uh, and solve your issues with Iran, uh, because the answer is not what's going on in Yemen or Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan increasingly, um, would really go a long way in getting them to at least start to tick off some of these challenges of the list. I think all well said. Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, there'll be a uh, lunch upstairs for those of you who want. And uh, remains only just to uh, thank all of our speakers.